Welcome back to the program. When we look at social media today, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, it's as if we're looking at something new that could revolutionize the world. In fact, the antecedents of social media define the very evolution of civilization itself. The fact is that the mass media, the broadcasting, the one-way dissemination of information of the past 200 years is the exception, not the rule. The sum of all of our technology today actually takes us back to our roots as a social and interconnected society. We're going to talk about this with my guest Tom Standage. He's the digital editor at The Economist. He's the author of five previous books, including A History of the World and Six Glasses. It is my pleasure to welcome Tom Standage back to the program today to talk about his book, Writing on the Wall. Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much for inviting me. Great to have you here. First of all, let's define what we mean by social media. How do we define it in ways that incorporates both what we we deal with today and its roots, its origins, going all the way back to the Roman Empire? Well, I think what's important about social media is that it's media you get from other people. So it's media that's filtered through your friends and that's delivered to you along these social networks. And that's how we see the Romans distributing information. Um, and uh, this, this model arises many, many times throughout history, and that's what I'm looking at in the book. The point is you don't need a digital network to do that. A digital network makes it easier and makes it cheaper and makes it quicker, um, but essentially it's the same model. It's getting information from people and filtering information through people rather than getting it from an impersonal box in the corner like a TV or radio or a newspaper that comes through the door, and it's exactly the same as the newspaper that's delivered to thousands and thousands of other people. So essentially, it's any kind of a peer-to-peer network that provides information. Yes, except I'm, um, I'm restricting myself to uh, the transmission of, uh, of media, uh, so I'm not talking about word-of-mouth uh, transmission, for example, because there's no media involved there. Um, and what happens when you have media, um, whether it's you know pamphlets or letters or poems or whatever being passed along this network, um, is that members of the network are able to copy it, pass on bits of it, filter it, comment on it, and um, and that creates a distributed discussion or community. And so even though the people are physically separate from each other, they feel like they're part of a wider group. And we see this in, for example, the use of um, letters exchanged by members of the Roman elite or the members of the early church or members of the early Reformation movement. And even, in fact, the small group of people around Anne Boleyn in the court of Henry VIII. And it turns out they had a book, a sort of Facebook of the court, uh, in which they wrote messages to each other. And that made them feel connected even when they weren't physically together. So that's the sort of defining characteristic here. And when we look at it, it's it's hard not to think of the patrons of the time as their version of venture capitalists in those days. Well, certainly that's the uh, the way it looks in uh, for a Roman author. If you're writing a book and you're a Roman, then um, you want it to be as widely uh, distributed as possible. The way you do that is by choosing your patron very carefully. You dedicate it to him and you put it in his library. And you hope then that all of the scholars and philosophers that go through that library will be so impressed by your book that they will ask for a copy of it. And um, today, of course, copying information is and delivering information is very cheap because we have the, the broadband internet. Um, for the Romans, um, they didn't have broadband, but they did have slaves. And slaves could both be copyists and scribes, or they could be messengers who carried things. But the effect was the same. Um, it made it very cheap for the rich Roman elite to, uh, to copy and deliver documents. And so they took advantage of this just as we do today. 
And as you talk about, even coffee houses are, are a kind of social network. Yes, yeah, so coffee houses are a sort of social media platform because um, they specialize in particular subjects. Uh, the coffee houses that emerged in uh, European cities and, in fact, in colonial America in the 16 and 1700s. And so there would be a particular coffee house where the merchants would go and another one where the the priests would go and another one where the scientists would go. And uh, so it made it sort of, it was a a kind of sorting of information. You would then go to those coffee houses and you could um, discuss the latest uh, news and the latest documents, um, pamphlets, news books, which were a kind of early newspaper, um, and then you might actually write replies to them. Um, and so this was a, a very alluring environment. In fact, some people thought it was too alluring. And we see very modern-looking criticisms of coffee houses that they're distracting people from doing useful work. Instead, people are just going to them to uh, soak up this amazing fire hose of information. So that's actually a very old complaint that dates right back to the 1670s. Uh, identical to the complaints we hear about something like Facebook today. Yes, in fact, um, we see professors at both Oxford and Cambridge University worrying that the country is going to go to the dogs, that Britain is going to lose its uh, its position, this, you know, the, the world power, because the next generation are not paying attention in their classes. Instead, they're in the coffee house, and they're very worried about this. But fortunately, they got this completely wrong. Uh, it turned out that coffee houses were great crucibles of innovation because they allowed people and ideas to mix in ways that they previously hadn't. And the result was an amazing burst of innovation in the late 1600s. Things like the Scientific Revolution, Financial Revolution, Lloyd's of London starts as a coffee house, the London uh, Stock Exchange starts as a coffee house. And looking back, that was actually an amazingly fertile period intellectually. So I think um, people who worry about social media wasting our time today may be uh, in for a surprise. I think we're going to see an acceleration in the pace of scientific and technological progress. And we're already seeing, you know, with things like Kickstarter and so on, the impact of of social media on uh, on business and on commercial innovation is, is extraordinary. So I think we could be in for another period of, uh, of great innovation as a result of social media. And somewhere two, three hundred years ago, all of this shifted to what we have come to understand today as mass media, where information was handed down to us, so to speak, yes. broadcast to us. Talk a little about that. Right. So what, what happened in the, in the 19th century was that um, first with the steam press, and then with radio and TV broadcasting um, in the 20th century, it became possible to deliver the same message to a very large audience very, very cheaply and efficiently. Um, And so that was obviously something that... uh, people seized upon uh, and you get the first really large circulation newspapers newspapers were extremely local in the early 1800s an American newspaper would typically have you know a thousand or two thousand readers and it would only have a very local distribution and it really was a sort of local social platform but by the end of the 1800s newspapers have a million copies a day being printed the most popular ones and this means that um, in order to compete with a newspaper like that you need to be able to afford to buy presses of your own and in order to compete with a radio station you had to be able to buy a transmitter And this wasn't something that was available to everyone. And so we see this concentration of access to the media um, in the hands of journalists and broadcasters and politicians like us, in fact. And uh, and the result is that the two-way flow of information is overshadowed by this one way. And people's media diets shift from being mostly stuff they get socially to mostly stuff they get from mass media organizations. And what's really interesting about the past 10 years is we can see the the pendulum swinging back. And um, young people today, you know, many of them say they don't read newspapers. They don't really watch much TV. Instead, they get most of their information through social sources, through their friends.
friends through the internet. And so this is, um, you know, some people think this is a bad thing, but it's very much a return to the way things used to be before the era of mass media, which really is a very recent phenomenon. And in fact, the era of mass media, taking a look at it in this larger historical context, the mass media era was really the anomaly. It was really a small period of time. Yes, it was because... um, Initially, those technologies for reaching a large audience were very expensive, and uh, so not everyone could have them. And there were also limitations like you know, bandwidth. Even if radio transmitters were, uh, were cheap, which initially they were, um, and they were available, you know, anyone could set one up, um, but there's a limited number of uh, frequencies, so you can't have everyone uh, broadcasting everything. Of course, the Internet does away with both of those problems. It's very cheap to reach millions of people, and uh, you can have as many people publishing as much stuff as they like, and you don't run out of space on the Internet. So it really overcomes the limitations of, uh, of mass media and it allows you to have um, a, the delivery of messages in a conversational way to a really large audience really, really cheaply. So we get the benefits of mass media, but we also get the benefits of social. Um, but this means that if we look back at the way social worked before the era of mass media, there are lots of lessons we can learn and we can answer some of the questions that we have about social media today because it actually it turns out to have happened before. One of the things that mass media allowed to happen is also propaganda, which was was one of the downsides of mass media. Certainly. So I think the the sort of opposite of social media, the furthest you can get away from it, is the Nazis' use of radio. And they had this radio um, called the Volksempfänger, which is the people's radio. And it was subsidized by the government to be very cheap, and it could only pick up domestic broadcasts in Germany. So you couldn't pick up any foreign news on it and, uh, and and then of course it was used to great effect by the the nazis to broadcast um, hitler's speeches and uh, and propaganda and so that is the imposition of one man's vision on an entire nation which he then tried to impose on the whole of europe and that's as far away as you can get from a two-way conversation um, between peers uh, it's very you know it's top down and it's one way and it's you're going to do it this way or or else and um and so that i think is the point where the, the pendulum swung furthest over towards the, uh, the mass media one-directional approach. And now we see it swinging all the way back, and we see the political use of social media in the Arab Spring and elsewhere. What was the tipping point when we went from this more social framework to, to mass media? When, when was that tipping point, do you think? Well, I think uh, the origin that I point to is the, uh, the emergence of a newspaper called the New York Sun in, um, in 1833, and it was the first newspaper to use the new mass media model. Newspapers up to that point had cost about six cents each, um, and the New York Sun cost one cent. It was a penny newspaper, and the way um, the model worked was if you make the, the newspaper cheaper, um, you lose money on each sale, but you get a lot more readers, and then you are more attractive to advertisers. So you use advertising to subsidize your, your business, and advertising actually becomes the main source of revenue. And this is the business model that newspapers adopted, uh, and then which worked very well for about 170 years. And at the peak in 2007, a typical American newspaper was getting 87% of its revenue from advertising, not from subscribers. But we've seen what's happened to the newspaper business in the last <laughs> 10 years. The Internet has you know, completely undermined the, that business model. And, um, and so that, uh, that mass media model works very nicely, but um, uh, the internet means it doesn't work anymore. What's interesting is to see the way the internet and a lot of social networking is trying to patch on the ad revenue model to social media. Yes, indeed. So um, uh, 
I think it's interesting that um, that this is. It, it, there are so many ways in which social media is is a. That the big social media platforms, that is, are uh, are adopting some of the aspects of old media. Um, so Twitter, for example, seems to be very excited about being an adjunct to TV advertising, which is sort of ironic because that's an old media, an mm. old model. Um, and Facebook, you know, essentially wants an ad-supported model, just like newspapers used to. And in fact, it gets the vast majority of its revenue from um, from advertising, just in the same way that newspapers did. But they're not the only games in town. And if you look at the way blogs work, for example, um, there are open uh, blogging platforms. If you want more features, you can pay for them. Um, there are some social networks where you do pay for extra features and uh, and for uh, for use of the platform altogether. So there is actually a diversity of models here, and uh, and people are trying to work out what the uh, the right model for social media is. But I don't think there's a single right answer, and I think it's important that we have a diversity of social platforms because even though we treat them as a social space and as a public sphere, um, they are actually, of course, privately owned, and so they're much more like a mall than a, a town square in the sense that the owners of the mall can, um, can chuck you out if they don't like what you're saying at any time. Um, so I think we need to make sure that we have a, a good diversity of, of social platforms if we're going to if treat them in this way um, as a public sphere. And does history help us here as we look at other forms of historical social networking? Does that help us in trying to, to envision new economic models for today's social networks? Well, I think so, yes. If you look at how um, coffee houses worked, they were simultaneously private public spaces and they were privately owned. Um, so, you know, there is a precedent here. Uh, it's not the case. And newspapers, similarly, you know, they started off very um, as social platforms and obviously they're privately owned. Um, so it is possible to have a, a privately owned um, uh, platform that could be, you know, socially useful. And, um, and we've seen that happen before. So I'm not saying that you know, everything needs to be open and public. But that said, um, if you look at the history of the internet, internet itself, uh, we've moved from a situation um, where uh, bits of it were provided by you know, private companies um, to uh, a, a situation based on open standards. Uh, and so you know, email and web publishing, uh, they're things done with open standards. And you can, if you want to, set up your own server and plug it into the internet and it'll work. And it's sort of anomalous that social networking doesn't work that way as well. And there have been various attempts to make it work that way. So I think it's uh, something worth looking at in the next decade. Will we see the emergence of open source alternatives to things like Facebook and Twitter? Will people want to use them? Will they be as reliable? Will they have the features? Um, I think that's a very open question. The other interesting amalgam in all of this is someplace like Starbucks, which is both a place where people are plugged into social media, but it also is social media in the sense that we're talking about it. Yes, I, I'm particularly keen on that sort of coffeehouse culture, both recreating it on the internet in the form of something like Twitter, which I think is very similar to a coffeehouse. There was this rule, what made coffeehouses so powerful was that social distinctions were meant to be ignored and uh, there's a lovely description from the 1670s where it says, gentleman, mechanic, scoundrel and lord all shall mix. And the idea is that um, you had to be polite and if anyone came and talked to you in a coffeehouse, you, you had to uh, be polite and respond to them and talk to them. And uh, you get the same thing on Twitter that, that uh, it's easy to sort of overhear people you know talking to each other and then to interpose yourself into the conversation. So that's the spirit of the coffee house reborn on the internet. But of course we also have this uh, rebirth of coffee culture going on at the moment in the world and, uh, and you know, maybe that gives us the, the opportunity to combine the, the real world and the, uh, um, the online versions of, of 
of coffee houses. Also, if you look at what happened with the scientific community, um, the, the Royal Society in London you know, started off in coffee houses, and coffee houses were places where scientists went to discuss things. But um, scientific journals emerged as a response, an attempt to coffee uh, to copy the uh, the coffee house spirit and spread it and allow people throughout Europe to participate in a giant virtual coffee house um, so even then there were people trying to link um, the real and virtual versions of this uh, distributed discussion environment so again that's a, uh, that's something that we're kind of rediscovering now one of the things that we've seen is that that in many ways the collaboration that exists within these social frameworks has been really serving to create new social networks and new social platforms. At some point, it arguably will mature enough that it really becomes an even greater collision of ideas and a, and a more powerful collaborative tool in the sciences and, and, and in humanities. And in business as well, I think. So um, business in particular has been quite skeptical about this. And, you know, the bosses may say that the problem with Facebook or YouTube or whatever is that um, it, it, where people ought to be doing work, they're, you know, they're, they're spending time social not working um, and, uh, and, and using social networks in that way. Um, but in fact, um, you know, there, there's been in, in recent years a move to create uh, social uh, platforms like Facebook for use inside companies and these turn out to have um, great value because they can encourage collaboration within companies and innovation and they can help people find uh, information uh, and, uh, and collaborators within the corporate structure so rather than being a waste of time I think um, Facebook may actually resemble uh, the future of enterprise software for many applications and of course people coming into the workforce now know how to use it already because they're familiar with social tools elsewhere so um, I think this idea that uh, we can boost collaboration and innovation within and between companies is one of the areas where social media shows the most promise. Um, most people think of it for businesses as, as a marketing tool, but it's much more than that. The other place where we're seeing it, at least on, on the cutting edge, is in education and the value with respect to education. Yes. So um, coffee houses were known as penny universities back in the uh, 1600s because um, you could go into them as long as you paid one penny for a dish of coffee, uh, which is what a cup of coffee was called at the time, you could listen to whatever intellectual discussion was taking place. And now we see the same sort of ideas you know, with MOOCs and the idea of online courseware and online learning. And uh, there's a lot of evidence that shows that people work um, and learn better in social environments and they learn better when they have other people to discuss things with. They, um, if they can't quite understand understand a particular concept, they can come at it from different angles by discussing it with different people with different points of view. So I think there's a lot of excitement around the idea of having um, online social learning in this way. Uh, and we already see some quite promising examples of that where um, you know, some of the pioneers of MOOCs have created these online communities or have, have sort of uh, spawned them. They've come into being spontaneously where people help each other to learn. So I think there's an enormous amount of promise there as well. The one thing that becomes clearer in looking at the historical context of all of this is that we hear so many people talking about social networking today as a, as a fad. In fact, the fad is the old media that we're coming out of. Yes, I mean, I think that's the, the anomaly. We're used to thinking of the history of media as old media, which was analog, and it was things like newspapers and radio and TV, giving way to new media, which is digital, on the Internet, and is much more social. And that's only part of the story, a very small part of it, I think, because the old media is not that old. It only goes back to the middle of the 1800s. And, um, and actually, if you look before that period, I'm arguing, um, you see a, a social environment that looks very similar to what we have today. So I call that the era of really old media and really 
really old media, before old media, is actually quite similar to new media, and it's only this sort of 170-year period in the middle um, that's anomalous. So, uh, yes, I absolutely think that um, uh, the idea this is a fad is wrong. Uh, media has been social for most of the past 2,000 years, and it's just become social again recently. But we'd forgotten about this, uh, this previous period of social media. So what I'm trying to do with my book is sort of remind everybody and uh, point out this forgotten um, period and these, this amazing tradition that we're all part of today as users of social media. It's an idea that has amazingly deep and rich roots. Tom Standage, the book is Writing on the Wall, Social Media, the First 2,000 Years. Tom, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. Appreciate it. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.